So I'd like to dedicate this talk tonight um, to the 33rd anniversary of IMS. IMS's 33rd birthday. Um, because the young seekers who came back to this country um, motivated by their desire to make it possible for more and more people to discover the truths that they had heard in the teachings of the Buddha. And it's an amazing thing how many people have woken up to these truths as a result of the seeds that were spread over 30 years ago. So may it continue. And I was very moved, um, I guess, a few weeks ago. Um, people all over the world were watching your inauguration. I'm from Canada. And it was very moving to see the thousands of people who, who came um, so much wanting to be free from fear and pain and confusion and delusion and greed and hatred and all the things that had been so much distressing so many people. And you could see that in people's faces, that longing to maybe this could be a turning point. And they wanted to hear that it would be possible to be free, possible to heal some of the painful divisions. Buddha Dasa once said, um, it's as though a great dukkha-making machine has been released upon the world. This is quite a few years ago. And it's felt like these last number of years that dukkha-making machine has been out of control. And that a large number of people are really <coughs> ready for this to stop. What can we do about it? And so what I'd like to talk about tonight is the first noble truth, the noble truth that there is suffering. And the Buddha didn't say, I am suffering, or you are suffering, or life is suffering, but that there is suffering. And the word suffering isn't really a great translation of the word dukkha. Dukkha um, covers both the physical and the emotional aspects of unsatisfactoriness in our lives. The roots of the word do is bad or different or apart from. And ka comes from akash, spacious or whole. So it's being separate from what's whole, separate from true nature. Or another um, interpretation is the wheel is off kilter. It, it expresses that fundamental unsatisfactoriness that there is about life. So when we talk about each of the truths, just as Philip was saying last night, it's not a metaphysical teaching, it's very practical. And the Buddha taught about the four truths as like a prescription. There's an illness, there's a cause, there's um, a possibility of becoming well, and there's a path to take to that. And in the same way, in each of the individual truths, there are three aspects. The saying, acknowledging, recognizing, there's a problem. This is what the particular problem is. So it's looking at the kinds of suffering, the kinds of illness. And then we really have to, the second aspect is we really have to observe it, 
to look into it deeply and see what its components are, to fully come to understand it. So it says that the truth should be <coughs> penetrated and fully understood. And then the third aspect is the integration of that knowledge, of knowing, the transforming quality of knowing that we know that truth. So let's talk about the first aspect. What is this noble truth of suffering? And the Buddha taught to contemplate it both internally and externally, in ourselves and in the world around us. It was very comprehensive. And the first of these, uh, there are the first of these aspects or types of dukkha that there are is known as dukkha dukkha. And that's the dukkha or the suffering of experiences that are painful in themselves. So externally, that would be war, violence, oppression, hunger, um, and the impact that ha has on millions of people in the world today. The, the depths of that is enormous, is profound. And then there's the internal exploration of dukkha dukkha, which is the inevitable pain of life, of having a body, the human life cycle. This is um, a story that I really like called The Pilgrimage that really expresses this. At the beginning of every year, the abbot would meet with the new monks who joined the monastery over the preceding year. And he would instruct them to pack their bags. He was going to take them on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. So of course they got very excited. They thought that they were going to some wonderful places and this was really fortunate. On the day of the departure, all the older monks in the monastery stood by the gate to send them off. Leading the group, the abbot first took them to a hospital. And there, the monks spent many hours visiting the sick. Then he took them to an old age home. And the new monks, who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age that some of the residents in the home were experiencing. Then he took the monks to a hospice. And in the hours there, the monks spent time with people in all stages of dying, including a long vigil with someone who was recently dead. Then the abbot led the group back to the monastery. And they visited first a monk who was sick in the infirmary. And the new monks were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the tired eyes of the ill man. Then they went on to visit the oldest resident, a 96-year-old man. And the monks were amazed to see the love and acceptance the toothless, frail, stooped old monk had. Then he took them to the hospice wing of the monastery, and they were introduced to a monk who was only a few days from his death and radiated a palpable peace that lingered with them for hours. Finally, he took them back to the meditation hall. And when they were seated, he said, you have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, 
sickness, old age, and death will not trouble you anymore. And so sickness, old age, and death are some of the sufferings that are inevitable in life just by nature of being born. The main cause of death is birth. That's how it is. But then the, the optional but deeply conditioned sufferings of the mind, the whole range of emotional pain, of fear and jealousy and hurt and anger and frustration and hopelessness. All the aversion and, and suffering that's created by the ways that we choose to relate to what happens to us, how we react to things not being the way we want. Someone said there are two tragedies in life, not getting what you want and getting it. And we as humans create a lot more suffering for ourselves than other beings because we want what we don't have and we don't want soften what we do have, and we worry about the past and about the future. There's a, um, I think his name, Dr. Saporsky, who wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. <laughs> and it's because um, if a zebra gets chased by a lion, there's the flood of adrenaline and fear and so forth, and it runs off, and then if it gets eaten, the fear is over. <laughs> but if it escapes, it starts eating again, and it's all over. And it doesn't think about it anymore. That's it. But if something scary happens to us, we go over it again and again and again. And so there's one of the difficulties of being human, is that, that we have this tendency to create a lot more stress by how we relate to what happens to us. And this is the suffering that the Buddha was addressing that we could be free from. Like the old monk in the story near death who was radiating peace <coughs> and, and ease. He was no longer caught in the fear and the suffering. And the next type of, of dukkha is Varapanama dukkha. And that's the dukkha of constant change where no moment is reliable. Nothing can be relied on to provide us lasting happiness because nothing does last. So it's going to be inevitable that be times we'll get what we don't want and times that we'll be separated from what we do want. And it seems really obvious, but we want to control that. And we want to anticipate what, how things will unfold in the future. We want to know how things will change. There's a, um, a lot of attention put on that. Every newspaper, every daily has a horoscope because we want to read about what our future will be like, that needing to know, to have control. There's a story that once someone went to Ajahn Chah, the teacher of Ajahn Samedo that Philip was talking about last night, and this man wanted to know his future, and he knew that Ajahn Chah had supernormal powers. And so he asked him once, and Ajahn Chah refused. And he asked him a second time, and again was refused. And of course, the third time, the, the abbot or the blessed one is supposed to answer. And so Ajahn Chah agreed to answer. So the man, what is my future? What will it be? 
or Ajahn Chah goes, your future will be uncertain. <laughs> and then he walked off. <coughs> and so it's really letting that in. It's a very powerful reflection to go and to really look at all that is near and dear to me will change and pass away. Everything. None of our possessions can we take with us. And all of those who've had a dear one die, parent, a relative, a loved one, know that when you're going through all their things, their house, it has a real impact. All these things that were dear to them, can't take them with you. And then the the third type of dukkha is called sankhara dukkha. It's the inherent unsatisfactoriness or burdensomeness of life. Um, Sometimes when our lives feel meaningless, we have this body that we have to keep feeding, and we have to keep working to earn money to feed this body. We have to keep cooking and cleaning up after the cooking and shopping and all these things that are on and on, over and over, because this is how a body is. And sometimes it can feel pointless, and it can feel like there's a profound underlying dis-ease. And the Buddha described these sankhara, or conditioned states, which are really a description of our experience. And he described these five categories of experience, form and feeling and perception and consciousness. And these are ways of knowing our experience, how we know the world. And then the last one are called volitional or mental formations. And really that's what we do with what we know, the intentions and actions that come from all our ways of knowing the world. (coughs) And we have a Uh, there's a constructedness about all of our experience. And the trouble is we construct a sense of self around that, that we feel is solid. And um, to keep it very simple, (laughs) um, it's all changing all the time, all of those. There's changing body, feelings, perceptions, thought. There's this constant flow of experience. It's continually arising and passing, building up and breaking down, flowing and decaying. There's nothing about ourself or the world that's separate and enduring. And so it's no no wonder that we feel an insecurity or an unsatisfactoriness when we try and cling to it. And so the Buddha said, these five categories affected by clinging, holding on to them, are one of the major causes of our suffering, the one of the major ways that we suffer. And there's a con- feeling of contraction when we hold on to those things. There's a really deep feeling of unreliability. And as we go through these evenings together, you're going to notice that we say a lot of the same things in slightly different ways. And the Buddha would do that when he was teaching. Because as the teachings gradually filter in, at some point, there's an aha. And so we may say the same words in different ways. And it's because it really helps to let some of it sink in, to fully penetrate and understand 
the dukkha. So let's have a practical example of that. So um, you went to lunch today, and some of you might have seen the tempeh and thought, tempeh, disgusting, (laughs) soggy styrofoam, (laughs) rehydrated. (laughs) And so there was a feeling of aversion, unpleasantness, unsatisfactoriness. Or you might have tasted it and thought, this tempeh is great, and the sauce is amazing. Not only that, the cornbread is wonderful, and so is the cake. And so it was all very much enjoyed. But then there was a feeling of fullness and distendedness and heaviness and discomfort. And so there was Rapanama dukkha, (laughs) the dukkha of change. Pleasant became very unpleasant. But then there was the thought, I'm a really stupid person for overeating. (laughs) I lost my mindfulness. Oh, woe is me. Guilt. (laughs) Then we become the greedy one who did that. That's the Sankara dukkha. We clinged, we've identified, we've become the one who's greedy. And the longer we hold on to being the greedy one, the more suffering there is. So those are the three types of suffering. And we've been meeting them all today as we've practiced, from the small things to the much larger ones. And we notice that our bodies and minds are constantly moving in response to trying to get more comfortable, to perceived discomfort, whether it's our seat sitting, whether it's in our body or our mind or wherever it is, we're driven in a way to avoid and fix and manipulate our environment so that we're not uncomfortable and suffering. Or maybe we're trying to, if it's a pleasant state, make it last longer, enhance it. It's not easy to face our pain, to be with discomfort. And there's a biological thing behind that. There's a survival reason to move away from pain. (coughs) and towards things that are pleasant. But unfortunately, what we do with it causes a lot more difficulty and suffering. And it is valuable and essential in some instances to move away from pain. But it's how we react to it that causes the suffering. And pain times resistance is more suffering. And so the Buddha then spoke about the second insight. Suffering must be fully penetrated. By fully penetrated, he meant directly experienced in order to understand it. And how do we do that when it goes so much against our culture to allow ourselves to experience it? We live in a culture that teaches us to avoid experiencing any kind of suffering, mental or physical. We have numerous mechanisms to do that. And it has very ancient roots. In the old days, the ancient kings killed the messenger who brought the bad news. And so um, if pain is the messenger, we want to get rid of it a lot of the time. And the challenge is to listen to the messenger and really embrace them, to hear them and fully connect with them and to be able to tolerate and be with the discomfort. And we're 
brought up in our culture to be intolerant of discomfort in ourselves and in others. And very often, there's a lot of fear and discomfort when we're around our own suffering and when we're around others. And we marginalize people who are ill or disabled in many <coughs> different ways. And there's shame about weakness. And we also judge our own um, suffering. We feel, oh, my suffering doesn't really count. It's not as great as the world's suffering. Viktor Frankl said that um, it's not useful. We can never compare the depth of suffering. Suffering is like a gas that completely fills whatever chamber it's in. And so our suffering is to be fully understood whatever its type of suffering it is. And as children, on the one hand, we're not supported to be with discomfort. I'm, I know as um, a physician, it was really amazing to me to watch, you know, babies would come in and get a shot. And so many parents would, um, they don't want the baby to cry. They immediately either stick a breast or a bottle in the baby's mouth. So the poor little kid goes, to, to yell, and then <laughs> food goes in right away. <laughs> Don't cry. It's not okay to, you know, of course there are some people that really, you know, hold the baby and there for the baby while it's crying. Yeah, it hurts. It's okay, I'm here. But so much of our culture is don't eat instead, <laughs> distract <laughs> instead. <laughs> Something else, anything other than make a noise that will be scary for me. And on the other hand, they're shamed for being weak. And so we have that double bind. And we're afraid of pain. Um, I also used to um, be present at a lot of births. And uh, I noticed, we noticed that there were increasing number of cesarean sections. And one of the midwives once stood up at one of our conferences and says, you know, natural childbirth is becoming an extreme sport. <laughs> it's not okay to, to, to experience pain. So here, we're encouraging, we're encouraging you to turn towards difficulties, to embrace them, and to see if we can be with them rather than running away, to look at them with kindness, to pay attention to understand rather than to pay attention to get rid of. And it's no small thing to be able to do that. Gloria Steinem says, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. <laughs> and so we need to look towards it to see how it is. And the gift of being fully here, of giving it our full presence, just as it is, takes a lot of courage. And that's what we're developing the capacity to do as we sit. And the Buddha spent lifetime developing these qualities of the heart that enabled him to face the armies of Mara, and that the night of his enlightenment culminated in his full awakening. Patience and faith and resolve, a willingness to be there, 
concentration and mindfulness, wise reflection. And mindfulness is the amazing quality that we've been practicing since we began. The paying attention, the knowing, the direct felt experience that's free from anything that's added, free from our ideas and our opinions. It's very powerful. We're paying attention to see the truth, to understand, rather than to judge or fix. So it's revealing things simply as they are, and has this quality of receptivity and openness. And so just have that sense as you're sitting. Receptivity, openness, relaxation. And when we're receptive, we're resting back. We're not interfering with experience. And there's an interest there that's precise. We're seeing things exactly as they are. We're neither repressing nor rejecting. So it's inclusive. It includes everything. Nothing is left out. So there's a very precise knowing. As Philip was saying this morning, the body in the body. We're intending to our experience with this very awake kind of contactful presence that senses and knows and feels. And sometimes we use noting to help us connect. Vibration, pressure, warmth, coolness. All those that help us connect with a direct knowing. So when we use the noting of in, out, whatever it is, we're pointing to the direct experience, the knowing of the experience. So it's a very simple process. So right now, knowing that you're sitting and listening. What are you aware of in the body right now? What are the sensations like? What's the quality of them? What's happening to them as you pay attention, as you allow the experience? Notice what sensations you're choosing to focus on. The pleasant ones or the unpleasant ones. And we can do the same with all sense contacts, with sound, with sight. Where are you choosing to look? <laughs> what sounds are you choosing to hear? What's the experience of hearing? So we're knowing all of experience. We're knowing our thoughts. That's very useful. A couple of hours ago, I was talking to Philip. And as I began to know what was happening, I, I noticed, oh, there are a lot of words coming out very fast. Oh, there's a mind state here that sounds like it knows what it's talking about. <laughs> now the next mind state is saying, I think I'd better be careful. <laughs> Things are moving too fast. Slow down. So there's a knowing of what's happening as it's happening. And the other thing is to notice what meaning we're giving to it. So there might be a pain or a very uncomfortable sensation. What meaning are we giving to it? Does it mean, does it mean this is going to, are we giving it the meaning this is going to get worse? That it's bad, that it shouldn't be here? Um, and we can look at what our attitude is to what's happening. And this is really key. What's the impact? 
what's the impact and what's the meaning. So you're being with your breath, you're being with your body, and then you get lost in a long story for about 20 minutes. And you come back, I was lost. My practice is terrible, I'm wasting my time, everybody else is sitting here quietly. (laughs) All that happened was you got lost. Simple observation. But the meaning and the attitude caused dukkha. So just seeing that, whereas if you came back and you began again, no suffering. So to notice, what's my mind doing with what's happening? Is it comparing me to other people? I'm moving all the time. They're still. They could be still, but they could have been lost in some story for at least half an hour about someone they're having a romantic interest with and not have moved at all. And so it's just what meaning are we giving and what's our attitude? And we start to see how the mind chooses what sensations to focus on, which to magnify, which to downplay, what the, what the impact is of the thoughts that we're having. We can make space and mindfully explore it. Sometimes we don't have the capacity to explore it. We don't have very much mindfulness and it feels like a lot of struggle. And then it's just, oh, this is how it is. There's struggle here. Or there's, so, there's too much pain, I can't be with it right now. This is how it is. I care about this pain. And it's important to notice, am I holding this pain with aversion or am I holding it with kindness? So perhaps you're having some back pain. And then you notice, as you pay attention, how am I holding it? Oh, I'm holding it with a lot of irritation. It shouldn't be here. It's spoiling my sit. It's going to probably be like this the whole retreat. And so then you notice, oh. And as you notice it, it starts to soften a little. And maybe you're able to bring a bit of kindness in. And as you bring a bit of kindness in, oh, the impact of that is a little softening. And so we start to tease it, up, tease it out a bit. So can we hold it with kindness? So we notice the impact of holding it with kindness and the impact of holding it with aversion. We notice the impact of holding it with aversion and judging ourselves for holding it with aversion, and so on. And we start to be able to balance our effort a bit. We see what happens as we pay attention to the pain and the discomfort when we effort and strive and want and have an agenda. And can our effort be more a willingness, just a willingness to be here and an interest, rather than an agenda that we should get somewhere or be somewhere? In the early years of my sitting, there was a lot more effort on not moving and developing a threshold for pain. (laughs) But developing a high threshold for pain doesn't mean that your mind is not reactive to it. It's not very helpful. It's much more helpful to be with it with kindness and then to know, would it be skillful to move? Or could I be with this and see what happens? So as I keep saying, we're not paying attention 
to make things go away, but to understand how it is that the pain is put together. To be able to pause in the midst of something that's unpleasant and difficult and hard, and to say, what am I aware of right now? This is really tense. This is really intense. It's burning. It's aching. It's itching, whatever it is. How am I with it? Oh, I'm rejecting it. I'm pushing it away. Oh, this is what judging feels like. Oh, this is what accepting feels like. And that in itself begins to condition and bring in friendliness. Um, I was talking to a friend who'd had um, had some, some incident happen with, um, with a friend where he felt really betrayed. And so he found himself going over and over in his mind <coughs> the betrayal and all the things that had happened and what had gone wrong. And then he noticed that he was really hard on himself for how could he have let that happen? How could he have not seen that this was coming? How could he have trusted? How he could he have got sucked in? You know, that kind of thing where you're going over and over it. And he saw how painful it was. And he said, I don't seem to be able to stop it. My mind keeps coming back to it and coming back to it. And sometimes it's like that. Our mind keeps moving towards the negative. And we say, well, why is that? What's going on here? And in a way, it helped me to, to learn that there's actually a biological um, brain pattern that moves towards negative. And it has survival value. It's more helpful to notice what's wrong in the environment in a way than it is to notice what's pleasant. It's if, you, it has, if you escape the lion because you're afraid, it has more survival value than if you stay and eat the juicy berries. <laughs> <laughs> and go out, go along with greed, <laughs> and it, and the, this brain studies they've done show that we we have this tendency more to go towards negative. But it may have a survival value, but it's not useful in terms of of, of working with suffering. Um, and I, I was, I was uh, talking with my vet because my dog had had a, an injury and had a. Um, a, a lesion on his back that he kept biting and chewing and wasn't healing and was getting infected. And so the vet gave him this cone. I'm sure you're familiar with those cones that dogs wear. And he said, well, you know, dogs just don't have any impulse control. They don't know how to stop doing it. And so I said to my friend, what you need is a guilt cone. <laughs> and he said, he was really like this idea. And so I thought we should hand them out at retreats. <laughs> So if you have a particular issue that you keep going back to, you can get out your metaphorical cone. <laughs> and just notice that movement of mind to keep going back to it. So we practice with the small moments of suffering. And we see these small moments, and that builds our capacity to be with. And we start to experience for ourselves the impermanent nature of everything, that the sensations or the wanting or whatever it is has a beginning and gets bigger, has a wave, and then it moves through. It's not a solid. So we start to be able to allow it. 
So allow the feelings of tension or fear or urgency or whatever they are to express themselves and move through. Um, many years ago, when my son was small in preschool, we were driving home um, through busy rush hour traffic, and he decided that he was really, really thirsty, and I had to stop and get him a pop. And I didn't want to do this. And of course, I developed aversion to his wanting, and it escalated. And then finally, I remembered my practice. Okay. And so I said, how big is your wanting? It's as big as a bus. It's huge. It's enormous. I said, wow, that's amazing. I said, what's it like? He said, it's so terrible. I said, wow, what's that? What's it like? And he said, I'm so thirsty, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth. Oh, my God. And he went on describing what it was like and how big it was. And for a little while, he was really into it. And then he saw something at the side of the road and, and watched that for a while. And then a time passed. And they said, well, uh, how big is it now? Oh, it's as big as the car. And so this continued. And then we got home, and he ran into the house and played with Lego and never even stopped for a drink. And so my learning from that was my aversion to his wanting was actually feeding it. And so sometimes we don't see that that's what's increasing our suffering, is our reaction to it. And he got to see that by allowing it, he didn't have to fulfill it, and that once he allowed the wave of it to move through. It passed. It was gone. But, and we think that we, our belief is that we won't be able to tolerate it, so we have to have it. And so to look at what am I believing, and by believing that I can't be with this fear, or whatever it is. But sometimes the fear and the pain are overwhelming. We feel engulfed by grief or rage or whatever it is, and it feels impossible to be with it or to accept. And the boundary to what we can accept is actually the boundary to our freedom. It's being able to be with it how it is, to accept it, that this is as it is, that what brings our, that what brings our, our freedom. But it's not a passivity. It's not a giving up. It is a giving up of resistance, though. Because when we give up the, ex the resistance, the energy is freed. And because we're no longer fighting and struggling with it, we're actually able to see more clearly, and the knots start to loosen. And the resistance that ties the knots together starts to loosen, and we start to be able to see the individual components that are making up the suffering, so we begin to understand them. I'd like to read this poem that was written by um, one of my closest friends who died this time last year. And she had cancer, and she had the most intense and terrible pain that I've ever seen anyone, even as a physician, experience because of the type of cancer that she had. The physical pain was awful. And there was nothing, really, that could be done about it, despite all the medication and everything. That was what happened to her. So this is a poem, and I'd like to dedicate it to her memory.
and it's called A Day of Rage. The arms of acceptance are numb, like unrequited love. Joyous embrace of the moment has turned to bitter dissatisfaction. Yesterday's steady steps of determination, tripped up by pain, fatigue, small daily losses, falter, stall, then mutate to helpless kicks and jabs aimed at all the world's stupidity and willful ignorance and greed. Aversion moves in and takes over. A small bump to the fingers feel like the cupboard attacking. The counterattack is a volley of shrieks as full of ferocious passion as the wrathful curses hurled at radio voices, rattling, trivia, sanctimony, falsehoods. The body itches and prickles and burns and affords no rest. The mind cannot alight upon a single twig of thought without the snap of judgment and antipathy. The heart is closed to other hearts. Tightly folded inward, this barricade itself another point of pain. So uncomfortable a state. No small wonder we mostly rush to bury it or transform it or dig beneath to find the truer feeling we hope it masks. But on this day, with no one home to take the brunt, no sentient scapegoat within range, and finding in myself an unsuspected readiness, I let the feeling have its way, even as I see myself detesting it. Inflamed, I rant and rave, and sense the fire dying down a bit, the better only to rekindle with louder roar and fiercer heat. Early in the day, I briefly glimpse what this is really all about. My illness, my interrupted life, the choices stripped away, the losses great and small, illusion of a future one can plan, shattered irreversibly, a transformation brought about by force. Momentarily, I know this anger in its purest form, not as a camouflage for grief or expression of a deeper need, but simply as itself, a clean and forceful movement of the human soul. Soon, though, the anger is displaced again onto any minor irritant at hand, and fury flies at targets indiscriminate. I'm glad they're there to take the fall. It seems untainted anger is too hot to hold for very long at all. At last, when this day is done, and only ash is left from all the fires, I see the diamond in the dust. Not fully knowing what I did, I'd had a victory of sorts. Even as I railed against the world and hated feeling so much pain, I didn't try and stop the storm, but suffered it until it died away. I let myself dwell fully in that state 
I stayed the hand of judgment, stopped the scythe of censure, that all too often slices passion down and drives the shadow underground. Today, I let the darkness rule, and doing so, set free a little of my soul. So it's that turning towards, to abide with, but not be overcome by. And as we stay with things, we start to see the component parts. They become clearer. The physical parts, perhaps the physical parts that might be headache, or pain, or vibration, or irritability. The emotional parts of frustration and hopelessness. It's not a single, solid, unyielding, oppressive thing, but fluid, moving, but changing. In Sharon Salzberg's book on faith, she talks about taking apart the cord, the cord of suffering. And I found that so helpful. One of my biggest hindrances is fear. And so it's helpful to notice what happens for me. Fear feels like this. Oh, judging the fear is like this. Then there's aversion to the fear. Then there's my beliefs that I can't work with it. And then there's the identification with it. Um, I'm a fearful person. I'm an anxious person. And seeing the impact of all those and seeing how as they separate out, there's a freedom from it. The more understanding there is, the less suffering there is. And we, I see that the fear arises due to causes and conditions. It's not personal. And there's an understanding of, of the history and background that led to the fear. But also, there's a noticing how um, the identification fixates it and keeps it stuck there. It kind of permanentizes it, the sankara dukkha. And that realization, I'm not my fear. Others are not their fear. The fear or the pain or whatever else it is, isn't personal. There are moments of fear moving through, moments of pain moving through. I found it really helpful um, working as a physician there was someone who used to come in and see me who had a lot of pain and medical, um, uh, physical and emotional in his life, a huge amount. And I would always feel really helpless and you know, see the name on the sheet for the day and sort of, oh no, and feel bad that I felt that way. And then one day as I was sitting there realizing I was feeling heavier and heavier, more and more resistant and frustrated because I couldn't fix it, I noticed my attitude, and I started to really listen and be there, and just agree, this is awful, this sounds so difficult, and just listen, and just be there. And then we both sat there in just the holding of how difficult the situation was, and something began to change. Between us, all sorts of creative ideas came that I would never have thought were possible. 
because I'd stopped trying to fix it. And I'd stopped being overwhelmed by the idea of his pain or my inability to fix it. It just became moments of pain. And it changed our relationship because I wasn't resisting it. So we can learn to be with pain and see that um, the mind can be with pain and yet not be pained by it. That the, there's a greater awareness that all these things are moving through. And if we can move into this awareness in the midst of pain or fear or whatever it is, the relationship shifts. And even if it just shifts for a moment, um, there's an openness and there's a possibility that, that uh, we can be more receptive and there can be transformation. But it's also really important to allow pacing to build our resources, to be able to be with the fear a little bit, or the anger or the pain a little bit, and then take breaks, and to know when we have a capacity. I don't have the capacity right now. Now would be a much better time to go for a long walk or take a shower. That's how it is. That would be the kind thing to do. Oh, I do have the capacity. It's a bit of mindfulness here. Let's see if I can really be with this and just go a little bit deeper. So respecting the pacing that's right for each of us, trusting ourselves. So that's the second insight, penetrating and fully understanding our suffering by directly knowing, directly experience, knowing the experience and knowing our attitude. And we've been, we'll be gradually introducing more tools as we go along. We'll be exploring with the breath. Mm. We can use the breath to stabilize and help us bring calm. The movement and the walking helps us become centered and grounded in the body to have a sense that we're, um, to remind us that we're not a closed system, that there's an interconnection with something larger than ourselves. And we can receive the support of the sky, the earth, just as the Buddha did on the night of his enlightenment. Taking refuge helps us, reminds us that we can come back and connect to the truth, to being awake. Loving kindness practice, compassion, and begin having a beginner's mind. Every moment is a new moment. When you get up after a sitting, you leave that sitting behind. It's, a, it's great. You don't have to take it with you leave it behind. So we trust our own experience and we trust that the grief and the anger and the distress and all these forms of suffering, when we can accept them and allow them, it's possible for them to transform and it can reveal how closely interwoven we are with all of life and bring this sense of connectedness. Then we can be less afraid of the first noble truth of suffering. We can let it be known and touch our hearts. So then there's the third insight. The noble truth has been fully penetrated. Suffering has been fully understood. We know that we know. 
And the importance of this is that really letting in that we know the direct experience. I didn't realize for many years how important this aspect of the first noble truth was. And I would have insights, and then I'd find myself repeating the same old patterns of suffering again and again. And I'd say, well, I know that I'm not my thoughts. You know, I know I'm not my mind states. And I knew on an intellectual level, but I'd forgotten to directly experience. So we need to keep reconnecting with the direct knowing over and over so that it gradually begins to transform and change our habit patterns. It's like recruitment. As they say in in neurobiology, neurons that fire together wire together. (laughs) So the more we have the direct experience and know the truth, the more it becomes part of our makeup the more we see the reactivity happening and we're able to let it go. But we have to keep doing it over and over. Anxiety and fear feel like this. Oh, reacting to them and judging them feel like this. And then, oh, this has arisen. And saying this has arisen reminds you it's a mind state. Oh, I don't have to believe my mind. What a relief. It's all a story. So it's that felt sense, that direct knowing, knowing that we know that brings the liberation. And we'll keep repeating these as we go throughout the week. That's the integration. And we had had an agreement between us that we would have 45-minute talks. (laughs) So my time is 45, uh, 55-minute talks, sorry. What we're talking about is knowing our experience, knowing our attitude to our experience. We're training ourselves to know what's happening as it's happening. And to do that all the time, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or walking or going to the bathroom or taking a shower, to know what we're doing. Taking a shower feels like this. Washing my hands feels like this. Judging my lack of mindfulness feels like this. And having that gentle interest all day, whatever we're doing, relaxed, curious attention, will help us be able to realize these three aspects of the first noble truth. So may your realization of these aspects of the truth bring freedom and happiness. And may you be kind to yourselves on this journey. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.